Downloads of the show are available at Podomatic.com or the Podomatic mobile app. Hey kids, you are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and this show is Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo. Today is Tuesday, August 28, 2018. And summer's almost over, kids. Well, not actual summer. That doesn't end until September 23rd. But, you know, media-manufactured Memorial Day, which is really in the spring, till Labor Day summer. How was yours? It's been strange for me. A lot of weird things have been going on. People having health issues, losing people. And I'm sure it's the same for you. I don't know. And then plus it rained almost every weekend. I guess maybe you could say it's been a kind of a cruel summer, wouldn't you?
And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was British new wave synth pop girl band Bananarama with Cruel Summer, which was originally a single in the infamous summer of 1984, but was then so popular it was included in their self-titled debut album the next year in 1985. Well, kids, we have a lot of show for you, as usual, which I can't wait to get to. But first, I'd like to include another song, jumping ahead about a decade and a half, that this week's guest artist handpicked to open their episode. Waiting for tonight. Oh, 
And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was the Bronx's own Jennifer Lopez with Waiting for Tonight from her On the Six album back in 1999. Wow, that song brings me back. Oh my God, I think of it as a summer song, but I looked it up and it actually came out in October. Maybe it was a summer song for the year 2000. Ooh, Y2K. Such a long time ago, wasn't it, kids? Well, we're getting back to the present now, because now it's time for my favorite part of the show. Whoa, whoa. Welcome to Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. Woohoo! We have a fantastic guest artist for you today. Um, I'm someone who I've been trying to get on the show forever. So please welcome a fantastic storyteller, writer, producer, actress, and I'm sure other fantastic things she will tell me that I forgot to say. <laughs> Anita Flores, fellow Latina. I'm, I'm, I'm getting all my Latin ladies on this show, trust me. I love it. I yeah. want to see more Latinas. Yes, more, everywhere, more, 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 everywhere. everywhere. Mal Latina, Mal Latina, Mal Latina, <laughs> y, y Mal Latina. And more. More Latinas. And more. Sí. And more. <laughs> so I thought that we didn't know each other very long, but a little pre-conversation uncovered the fact that we actually met about three or four years ago. I would, that's, yes, I would agree with that. However, I do suspect that I probably have had seen you perform before and we had never spoken. Mm. So I think I feel like I know you and I've known you for longer because I know for a fact that I've seen you perform before we met. And I've, and the same thing, igual, oh. the same me with you. Like, I would see you around. Yeah. So, but uh, we have figured out that the conduit for us actually being together on the same show was Harmon Leon's tail show when he did it downstairs at Three of Cups. Yes. Which is no longer around. Three of Cups closed down oh, earlier I this year. Yeah, oh. everything closes, Anita. The, my, my East Village is no longer the East Village. Oh, my God. Ugh, but, you I... know, whatever. Cities adapt. They evolve. Sure. You know, so yeah. do we. I wish I could have seen your yeah. East Village. Mm. But, you know, I also have a saying. It's never going to be as good as it was. Sure. But it's never going to be as good as it's going to be. I mean, that's a really positive outlook, and I, I hope that that is true. Let's and talk about you. So um, I do know that you're not a native New Yorker, and you, you, you're, are you all Latina? Two big things, because you are a native New Yorker, you can tell me if technically I am a native New Yorker, because I was born in Queens. Okay. Uh, Ooh, what neighborhood? Uh, Flushing. So I lived there with my parents until I was seven years old. They couldn't afford it anymore. So my mother's family, who lived in Connecticut, said, hey, we'll help you pay for things if you move to Connecticut. So I moved to Connecticut, and then I was there from age 8 to, like, 17. Then I moved around to a bunch of colleges, and eventually I came back to New York at age 20, and I'm 30 now. You qualify as a native New Yorker. Yes. Being a native New Yorker, in my book, means that you were born here and you went to some grade school here. Because I always say, if you can survive a New York City public or Catholic schoolyard, (laughs) you can survive anything. 
I think that's absolutely true. And now I'm coming up on my came back to New York anniversary. Or no, I already past it of like 10 years. So wow, so. Connecticut and New York, the two very disparate places oh, to grow up. Very different. Well, we'll get into some of the differences between that in a little bit. So in terms of my background, so my mother is from Connecticut. She is Jewish, Lithuanian, white. My father is from Peru. He's Peruvian. He was born in Lima. So if you find me on Twitter, I'm Anita Jutina because I'm Jewish and Latina. Oh, I love that. Yes. Very happy to be, especially especially be Latina on my dad's side, because I think Flores, in my opinion, is a great last name. <laughs> sure. Flowers. I, Anita if, Flowers. Anita Flowers. If I had my mom's last name, I'd be Anita Rapkin, which just doesn't have the same ring, you know? Well, but, um, a lot of co- comedians have um, names that sound like that. The one that came to my mind immediately was Gilda Radner. Ooh, yeah. Good point. I definitely know a lot of things about her, but, you know, I didn't grow up in that era. And I wish I, I feel like I need to do some research. So, Anita, um, do you come from a performance or education-oriented family? So... Artistic? mm, That's a good question. Well, my, so my dad has, to me, what I would call a fascinating trajectory. Because he went from, uh, he very early on knew he wanted to travel. So he left... Uh, Peru pretty early around college time and then finished college in El Salvador. When when was he there? This was a long time ago. 70s. I oh think. wow, okay. Because he's 65. Um, so then after he left, I think he, I want to say he got a degree in journalism, but what I do know he went on to do, the two things that he did spend the most time doing, at least um, to support our family was he worked for Guerlain, which no longer exists, as a perfume salesman. So wait, so before that, no, these are important things. He, he, he was a radio DJ, he did amateur boxing, and then he's a very smart guy. I mean, he speaks Spanish, French, and English. So when we moved to Connecticut, he actually worked as a substitute teacher um, teaching Spanish and French. Wow, when did he come to the U.S.? He came to the U.S., I want to say, in, like, 83. And he actually met my mom at the airport. They were, it was, like, a, during a layover. I always feel bad at ruining it. They are divorced. However, still friends, live very close to one another. Um, and then my mom, I feel like she went to school for writing... Is she um, a first-generation immigrant, or was her family here for a long time? I don't know what you'd call her, but I know that her great-grandparents came from Russia. They're American. I'm always confused as what to call me, you know, because I have one parent that's from a different country. You know, maybe we don't need to put a thing on it, because that's the whole thing. It's like, you know, people put labels and whatever. But then again, I've had a lot of people on the show that are first generation, that their Mm -hmm. parents are from, both their parents from the other country. And the experience of growing up and wanting to become a creative person or an artist when you're first gen is so different than people whose heritage is more assimilated, that whose whose family have been in the country longer. So with what you said, I feel like the people that I know who have grown up with, like, parents from different countries, seemingly there's definitely, like, a much bigger pressure for them to succeed. Mm-hmm. That's, like... Yeah, show me the money. Make the money. That's a big, huge thing. Do you speak Spanish? I do speak Spanish. I am not fluent. I do have a good accent. But I will say I have been purposely going to Spanish-speaking countries 
so that I am like so that I speak more Spanish. Yeah, that's something that it's I want to do so too. Um, I consider myself one and a half lingual. Okay, you know because sure. I don't have vocabulary, my accent wavers. Sure, and it's it's it's. Uh, it sticks in my craw. I feel Absolutely. like I should it hurt. You know, yeah, it does. It, it does. does. So I personally feel with some of the Spanish-speaking countries I've gone to, I get like a warmer welcome when they see that I do want to speak Spanish. Well, of course, people will always be receptive when they see that you're trying. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that will be across the board in anywhere you would travel. I mean, yeah. I, th I think, but sometimes I think the thing that... I have found, and I have not traveled extensively to Spanish-speaking countries. The only mm -hmm. place I've, I've been to Washington Heights, no. <laughs> <laughs> Spanish all of no. I've been to, and I've been to Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. but I found that maybe this is just personal for me that I've felt judged mm -hmm. for speaking Spanish like the American that I am. So let's get back <laughs> to you and your origins. Do you have siblings? I'm an only child. You're an only. Mm. I know. And it's so weird to hear people say this to me, but they will sometimes as a compliment. They'll go, you know, you just seem like you have siblings. And I know that they mean it as a compliment. Like, you're <laughs> That's not so weird. And like, you're not weird and selfish, which apparently um, is like a big uh, really? So, So I never found selfishness to be indicative of only children more than anybody else. Huh. No. Oh, I, I don't think that that's true, but uh, these are just stereotypes that I've heard uh, of over the years. Well, we must dispel all stereotypes now. Yeah, yeah, I'm hoping I am breaking the stereotype. Yes, well, you know, by being a, a outspoken Latinx woman and an artist, you are redefining what being an artist means. So were you creative as a child? Did you? Have... So in terms of creativity, I definitely liked writing from a young age. I still have some uh, some journals from when I was... A kid, I, I, I wrote a lot of poetry, which I do not now, but I definitely <laughs> really liked it then, and I do think perhaps it was like a sign of things to come, because it definitely took me a long time to find sort of what I really like, which seemingly it's storytelling. I love storytelling, and that's not something I always thought I would do. It also isn't necessarily a thing that was like even an option until... You until know, recently. Until recently, yeah. exactly. Um, did you think that you wanted to be a, a, some kind of performer or actor? I think I did, yeah. I So when I first moved to New York, the first thing I did was take a sketch class, which was, I didn't really like it that much. And then I took improv, and I really didn't like that. And then on a whim, I saw that storytelling was an option at UCB. And then I thought, wow, this is great. And from there, I just went on in that direction. So like high school, college, you didn't do creative things in school? So in, in my youth, though I did not necessarily do creative things in my youth, what I did do, which is explains a lot about me now and the things that I like and reference, I watched a lot of movies and a lot of TV growing up. Because I didn't do really any extracurricular activities, the the sort of my Rolodex in my head of a lot of like movies and TV is quite large and has definitely for sure contributed to the direction that I went in. Because I was a huge TV and movie person. Then I went to school, my first two colleges, I was a psychology major. And then, which seems so insane to me now, because eventually I ended up coming to New York and going to school for, like, film and screenwriting. What were some of the movies that um, influenced you or that stay with you now to this day? Mm, movies? That's, ooh, The Birdcage. I love The Birdcage. I mean, 
that movie very much shaped like the fact that I love comedy. I definitely, I would say, is part of the reason I love the show Frasier, which is why I have a podcast mm. called I'm Listening about the show Frasier, because um, I'm very much a fan of like hysterical, silly comedy, for sure. I also watched a lot of horror movies. I don't know what that says about me, but I know my mother was concerned. Because, <laughs> like my best, my like slasher movies. Oh yeah, I mean I've seen every Friday the Thirteenth. I've seen every um, Halloween movie. I've seen every. Uh, Are you into Cesar Romero? He oh, like yeah. pioneered the zombie movie. Heck yes, hell yes. I've 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 probably seen everything in the zombie genre from Cesar Romero. Wow. Do you do you say. still like horror movies? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. If anything, I have developed a weird new habit where, um, in general, I never get joy out of like watching scary movies alone, because mostly because I don't like being scared alone. But more recently, when there are movies I really want to watch, the way I found around it is I have to watch a horror movie in the morning. Ah, that's funny. And I also like really. Silly, stupid horror movies. Those I get a lot of fun out of. Uh, I watched in the morning over the last few mornings as I've been getting ready for work. I've been watching a ridiculous movie called Friend Request, which is about like a witch that haunts people through her Facebook account. It's so stupid, but I can't get enough because it's so dumb. I love how horror movies have really kept up with society yeah. and pop culture totally. I think almost more than any other genre yeah because like the, the first Halloweens came out when I was a teenager mm -hmm. so it's kind of like you're reinventing yeah. that again for this generation for sure yeah I totally agree with you and you know what I didn't even think of that until this moment it's weird because you know I do love watching tv and movies but Currently, I don't like watching anything that's really sad. So, like, I like TV, especially given, like, our political climate. If anything, I'm always looking for something that is far away from real life. So I end up watching Frasier a lot, and I end up watching horror movies, because if I'm really stressed out, it's like watching a horror movie makes you focus on the fear at hand. Am I saying it's healthy? I don't know, but I love horror movies. Listen, it's the same way... Not the same way. It's relatively similar to people that will watch some kind of weird-ass reality show. Like, sure. Like Intervention or Hoarders. Hoarders is a thing, for yeah, sure. Yeah, so like you watch this show, and you see how messed up these people are, and you don't feel as bad about your life. Yeah. yeah. So you did you really pursue anything creative during your formative years, like in the times that you were in, like from grade school up to college? I mean, I hate to admit this, but like... I was very lazy. I, I wouldn't say I tried. I wasn't a Boggle. I wasn't a good <laughs> student. And and I was a terrible test taker. Like I, like I took two AP classes and I did mediocre in both, like a B, a B and a C. The B class was in a psychology class. And then when I took the um, whatever the test was at the end that you take for AP classes, I completely bombed it. And my, my teacher asked me, what happened? I said, I have no idea. I did terrible on the SATs. I just, I was never, for me, I never excelled in school. And I never really took off, in my opinion, until I left school. Mm. And that's where I started really making all of my connections. Now, what, how was college for you? 
So college was quite interesting. I'll talk a lot about this during my one woman show, but I went to four different colleges. So I wouldn't say it was easy. I would say I had a lot of difficulty trying to find the thing that I really wanted to do because I was very much, I was very scared of starting over and not having my friends at my side. So the first two colleges I went to, I followed a best friend to their college of choice, which both mistakes. Um, and I really started to excel once I left and like really threw myself into finding my own. So how many colleges did you go to and what were their names and what did you major in? First, I went to LaSalle College, which is like a small, not very good uh, liberal arts college in Massachusetts. I was a psychology major. Then I went to the University of Connecticut as a psychology major. Then I dropped out. I went to Peru with my dad. I'd never been. I, he wanted to visit some of his family. Um, that was a big deal for me because I'd never traveled really outside of the country, and I'd never really met other than my, other than my dad and and my grandparents. I'd never met this other side of my family. Oh wow! I'd only just been around lots of white people, and so that was a really big. So thing. you, your dad didn't have any relatives in this country at all, other than his parents, and and he had t- like two half siblings in Fort Lauderdale, but we lived in Connecticut. Right. So yeah, it was, it was not around the corner. Right. It was very isolated. Did you grow up with your grandparents? No. So what I did was I grew up with my parents and then in the summertime I would go with my dad to visit my grandparents in Miami because they lived in Miami beach, which was like being in a different country. Yeah. No, I know my grandparents lived in Hollywood, Florida. So, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of Spanish speakers in Miami. Um, yeah. Okay, so so third college, technically, okay. So I dropped out of school, went to Peru, and then I wanted to see if I wanted to move to New York. And I thought, I'm broke, so how am I going to afford to see if I want to live in New York? So I'd like to say that I pulled a con on, the, on New York University. I took one credit in the summertime as an internship so that I could live in the dorms and have a meal plan. And it probably cost me about $1,200 for June, July, and August. So who got scammed? You or them? Them. (laughs) It was my greatest scam. It was like, you know... But $1,200 scam. Well, technically, think about it. I'm paying $1,200 divided by three... So what? Four hundred dollars a month, okay. For food and rent. Oh. So NYU, ding, 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 hundred percent got scammed by Anita, and I'm still very proud of that. Uh, and so during that summer, that was the summer of 2007. I lived in New York. I had two internships um, at production companies, and I took um, a sketch writing class. And then I decided I liked New York. So then I applied to Brooklyn College. So I did have to move back home for about five months. And then five months later, I moved to New York to go to Brooklyn College. And that's where I graduated from. Ah, and what were you majoring in there? Film and television. And were you always working in that field before you went to college? Not at all. Not at all? Not at all. So what made you decide to major in film and television? Did you have some kind of epiphany at some point saying to yourself, you know what, this is what I want to do? I I would say yes, I did have an epiphany. And it was definitely uh, when I was at UConn. So for one thing, I was taking psychology, but... Any math and sciences class, math and science classes I were taking, I was completely flunking because I'm not good with numbers. Separately from that, I thought, what is the thing that I love and always am thinking about and is always a part of my life? And I thought, oh, film and TV. 
for sure. Right, because you watched movies all the exactly. time and TV shows. And thankfully, I think it is a blessing that when I tried to see if UConn had like a film production major, they didn't. And then that was a huge turning point for me. And then I had a date with this guy who told me he was a psych major and that he was going to stick with it even though he was unhappy. Yeah. And so How old was he? He was 20. Oh my we God. were both 20. And I was like, are you crazy, dude? This is the time. There, actually, every, any time is always the time. You should, like, the, it's very upsetting to me the idea that you ever settle. I would love to know what that man is like 10 years from now. It is possible. No, actually, I don't want to know what that It's possible that, that he's like a therapist and he has a lot of money and is oh, un- unhappy. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so good money is wasted on rich people. That's what bums me out. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, um, coming to New York, I think I was always destined to come back here. My first year, I was very lonely, and that was very, I think it was very much because I was quite sure that this is how it was always going to be for me. And then at a certain point, I just forced myself to start doing activities that I liked. So I joined, like, the TV club, which was like a club for people that wanted to do TV production. And through that, I met basically all of my friends that I am still friends with to this day. And I graduated uh, in 2010, which was eight years ago. So I'm still friends with these people from college. But then I started to realize the majority of my friends that I am friends with now from college are all New Yorkers. Really? All New Yorkers. So you found your home. You came back home. You're like the prodigal daughter. Yeah. I mean, I felt like I, this has always been my home and it's a very weird thing to remember that I, you know, adolescence and the teen years, we're at Connecticut, and honestly, I don't miss it even a little. <laughs> Not even a little. So when you graduated Brooklyn College, did you you had a, a bachelor's in film and TV? Yes. So what did you do with that? How did you parlay that into your work life? What happened next? So, uh, so I started working when I was 15, and I basically had the same job in Connecticut from 15 through college, which was this. I was a cheesemonger. What is a cheesemonger, you ask? It's a person that works at a cheese shop and cuts cheese. When I, uh, when I was finishing up college, uh, at one point I was working seven days a week. I want to bless the people that are doing this for longer than I did, which I did for five months because I wanted this internship so badly. I was an intern at the Colbert Report. That was like a huge turning point for me. It did not. What year? So that was 2010 and it did not pay. Let me tell you, I was working there four days a week. This was before it was illegal to not pay interns. And I knew I wanted this, but I also knew I needed to. This make... is before he was on CBS. This oh, was, yeah. He was on Comedy Central, was he on? He was on Comedy okay. Central, yeah. So that was then. And so I wanted it so badly and I thought I can I if I do this I also have to be making money and I remember when I accepted that internship I also accepted the fact that I was going to be working three the other days out of the week I remember I cried I was like how am I going to do this and then I just had to make myself a schedule of when I was going to do my laundry and I worked seven days a week for five months which compared to many other people's probably not a big deal but it was a big deal to me um Yeah, so I did that, and then from there, I did a lot of production assistant work, like working for very small amounts of money on film sets for probably three years. PAs, man. Oh, my God. I have so much respect for PAs. I, I mean, I had to get out of it because I personally, I was working on a lot of reality TV, and it is just the bottom of the barrel. I, I knew that I am in, 
in terms of being an aggressive person, I'm not an aggressive person. And what I notice or mean, and what I notice is that a lot of people that would rise up from a PA to other things were very much like, yes, I'm aggressive. I'm getting in there. I'm being loud. I'm being whatever. I'm being brash. And like, that's just not in my nature. So what ended up happening was eventually I started working at a comedy website. I was making minimum wage. What was, can you say the website? It was called My Damn Channel. I was, I was like a glorified intern essentially, but it was the first time I worked in comedy and that was really cool. During that time, I pitched my own series to them, which everyone can watch online. It's called Questionable Drawings. So Questionable Drawings was um, an animated web series. Uh, the animations were by me, and it's basically me drawing on a whiteboard. I would interview comedians and ask them questions, like weird questions, and animate their responses. So you can draw? Uh, technically, no. If you, watch, <laughs> if you watch these episodes, you will see that I have not a very good drawing ability, but... That combined with these stories and combined with the fact that my friends would edit this for me and they would either speed up me drawing or turn it into stop motion gave it like some sort of like DIY charm. So Mm. I did that. Because I did that series, I think that is the reason I ended up getting my first full-time job, which was um, for a few years I, I was a social media manager. So that's basically just tweeting and, fa- and like, Facebook. Oh, that's so millennial. I know. <laughs> and I, so then I did that, and then I knew I didn't want to do that uh, after a certain point. And then I'd say, like, probably the, the most exciting, you know, sort of, like, he, I, this is me going into a career was when I worked at Univision. I worked as a video producer at Flama. That was, um, that was a site for Latinos, Latinas. Latinx. Yeah, I've heard of that one. It's gone as many yeah. Latinx they go. media companies are just going down the toilet, which is really sad. Is Me Too still a thing? Me, they, Me Too it also just laid off 50% of their stuff. Oh, and like, my I think the God. CEO quit. Like, I used to see them post stuff all the time, mm-hmm. and I haven't hardly seen them post anything. Yeah, they they, they let go. Ah, uh, that's it's too bad. It's really sad. That's yeah, so... Uh, so that was a, that was a big deal for me. That was one of the best jobs I ever had. Is was it about this time that you started to pursue performance and comedy on your own by going to you mentioned going to UCB earlier? Yes, performance and comedy. I would say I started probably seven years ago. Now, what sparked that in you that you wanted to be front of camera as opposed to behind camera? I think maybe what sparked that came from me taking a sketch writing class 11 years ago because I took the sketch writing class. I did get frustrated with actual writing because that's still something I struggle with just sitting down and forcing myself to write. But I had to go to a lot of shows at UCB. The reason I went to UCB was because I knew when I moved to New York, it was this like legendary institution. So I thought I'm going to go into this blindly and I'm going to take a sketch class. After going to a lot of shows, I started to become envious of the actual performers And then, so that was definitely in the back of my head. Then when I interned at the, um, at the, at the Colbert Report, somebody, a friend of a friend asked me if I wanted to be a volunteer at a comedy festival in Brooklyn called the Eugene Merman Comedy Festival. I've heard of that. So I interned there in 2010. And then after that, I started doing a lot of behind the scenes stuff at comedy shows. And I really loved the scene, and just and and then a part, and then there was this yearning that started to become. So like, you were around stand-ups all the time. All the time. And did you ever try to do it? 
So stand up is something that I uh, I am still figuring out. Mm-hmm. I I have been doing more stand up in the last year. But it's definitely, like, I have been spoiled by the storytelling community. Because in my opinion, the storytelling community is very welcoming. And you go and you go to a show and people just want to listen to you. And they're not going, where's the joke? You know what I mean? And I, by nature, I want to be telling funny stories. Um, and stand-up is very much like, you have five minutes. to, And you need to be funny consistently for five minutes. Yeah, you need to have a joke every ten seconds. Exactly. And it's a, There's, like, some, like, weird formula. Right. And I just love to talk. <laughs> so that is still something I'm figuring out. Yeah. So here you are working behind the scenes at a lot of stand-up comedy shows. Yeah. What What is the point where you discover that there's another art form called, called storytelling? So that came in because I was going through UCB classes. So at that time, I was taking my cheese shop money, my my money working at Uno's on 95th Street in Bay Ridge, and putting it towards these $400 classes at UCB. So I took sketch. I seemingly did not have the attention span to do that. Then I took improv, and I did not like it. And it was discouraging, but I still, even after I took this second improv class, I thought to myself, I know that I want to do comedy. I'm not going to give up. There's got to be other stuff. So my first storytelling class was with Margot... Margot Lightman! That was my... Oh my gosh, you're so amazing. And what made you want to take this class? I think I wanted to take the class because I knew I was never... I was done with improv. I didn't want to do sketch. And story... And I was very scared of stand-up. And storytelling seemed like a really gentle way of of getting to continue to perform but not necessarily with the same kind of pressure that stand-up and improv has it's so funny that so many people say that storytelling is the kinder gentler comedy it's so funny it is fun it is but it is it is it is and you know so i took that class with her and there was a bit of a lag in between because i was still in college at the time between her class and then I took David Crab's class, mm. and that that ah. was a bigger turning so you, point. So you were part of the Crab Lab. I was part of the Crab Lab. Oh my god, I loved the Crab Lab. I loved it. Okay, you've taken the storytelling class at UCB. What is the point that you decide to start doing it? Man, I feel like I really started performing a lot more after. Natalie Wall, who is also a comedian slash storyteller, she asked me to join the sort of comedy tour or comedy group that she created. It's called Awkward Sex in the City. So this is a traveling group of comedians that go to cities probably in the East Coast-ish area, I would say. That's as far as I've traveled with them. Um, And it's stories about like dating, sex, and romance. So when she, so she asked me, she had already been doing this tour with other comedians for a year. Then after that, she reached out to me and it was very unbelievable timing because the, so I lost, I had a job at the time. This was several years ago. I had just lost a job. I was very upset about it. And in the same week found out I had a, I have talked about this, so this is not a, this is not a sensitive area for me, but I found out I had this tumor in my uterus and that I was going to have to have it removed. Oh dear. And then it might be cancerous. It turned out it was not cancerous, but I still had to have major surgery. So she reached out to me 
during this terrible, terrible week. And it was just so, it meant so much to me that this other person that I loved and respected wanted me to, wanted to do comedy with me. So, and then I joined this tour and fortunately our first show was after I had had months to recover from the surgery, but I was still very like wobbly and just like finding my, my way back. And I remember we did this show at Black Cat, which is um, a theater in DC and it was sold out. There were hundreds of people there. It was easily the greatest performance I've ever done and experienced in my entire life. And from then on, I feel like I have just wanted to repeat that. Mm. So like having that, and maybe this is something you can relate to, but like there's just a high of like knowing that people like think you're funny and like like what you're saying and are engaged. That just, it makes me always want it even more. Yes, that feeling is just so amazing. So you like, you just like took off with storytelling and you never looked back. Yeah, I would say I've been pretty consistent. And Vanessa Valeria, who is definitely um, an inspiration to me. And she's your co-producer now. She's my Mm. co-host. I mean, she moved to Denver, but she's coming to do our monthly show in September. So I'm really excited to reunite with her. Which is called Party of Two. Party of Two. It's, you know, stand-up and storytelling about dating in New York. So you always get some really good stories and some good stand-up. We've been doing our show for two years. We, you know, we have a following. It's amazing. Um, And, yeah, having, like, a consistent show is a very good motivator to continue performing. So a little Pescao says that you have a little excerpt to share from your solo show called College Sucks. I absolutely do. Um, So I very much wish that somebody had told me, had given me advice before starting my college journey. As, as a result of me going to four colleges, I feel that I have much wisdom um, to share with anyone listening who is thinking about where they're going to go to college. So I have a few pieces of advice for you. Number one, do not go to your best friend's fourth choice college. That is a mistake. Um, I think depending on where you go to school, you're going to feel really pressured to immediately leave your home and go off uh, and go to whatever college will take you. But guess what? Private college, we're talking $60,000, $70,000 a year. So really think about what you're doing. Maybe go to community college and then decide if you want to go to the school that you want to go to. And also you'll have a chance at community college to uh, get those grades up. So that's, that's my first piece of advice. So I did follow my best friend at the time to her fourth choice school. Uh, So that's my, uh, here's another piece of wisdom. If you can avoid it, do not live in a room with three other people. It's a lot. It's a lot. I lived with um, three other women and very quickly came to discover that we were living in uh, a convert, like a room that was not meant to be a room. It was in the basement of a former sanitarium. Sanitarium is an old-timey word for mental institution. So, you know, from far away, honestly, it sounds like a very sort of sexy synopsis for some sort of horror movie with sexy teen or sexy co-eds, but in reality, it was really a lot of mental breakdowns because we all realized we'd made a mistake coming to this college. Um, A centipede infestation, you want to see a horror movie? That's a horror movie, a centipede infestation. 
And we also didn't have anyone else on our floor because we were in the basement. Uh, so it wasn't a great opportunity to, say, make friends. Um, so that was another uh, mistake. Avoid it. Uh, another thing I would say, uh, learn from this, come up with your signal of somebody is going to have sex in the dorm room. You need the signal, as in a scrunchie, you know, something on the door that says don't come in. My three roommates and I never had that conversation. So on Halloween night, I remember coming back to my dorm room. On the whiteboard, there was a blob on the, on the whiteboard that I found out later was supposed to be a penis. Regardless, tell me that the penis signifies that you're having sex. We never had this conversation. So I walked into that room and came in to see not one, but two of my roommates having sex with their own separate gentlemen. Um, and I think the weirded extra level of weirdness there was the fact that everyone was wearing their Halloween costumes because it was Halloween. So, you know, you had guy dressed like Mr. Peanut, you know, just making sweet love. We'll call it sweet love to drunk 18-year-olds, uh, um, to a woman dressed as a French maid. You know, it was, it was weird. And, and I, when I'm in these uncomfortable situations, I feel as if I need to con just talk. I need to talk my way out of it. So then I'm, t I'm talking to them. I'm saying, wow, this is uncomfortable, isn't it? Then I start talking about this party I just came from. And that's another lesson. People don't want to make small talk while they're mid-intercourse, you know? And so at a certain point, things are still happening that are sexual in that room. And at that point, I just ran out of the room. Um, so yeah, that's another uh, lesson for you. I think those are all the lessons I can probably give you right now um, from my excerpt. Um, but I would say my biggest takeaway from all of this is really think hard um, before you sign off on a loan to Sally Mae. Because what they're going to do is send you the amount of money you owe after you graduate. And you think, what? I never would have signed off on this loan for $10,000. Then they send you a picture of your signature. And it is truly frightening. So those are my lessons uh, for anyone listening right now. And that was an excerpt from College Sucks. That's right. So we'll have to um, keep our eye on them when you're going to be doing that show again. Absolutely. So the, did you see how like how hard I was like trying not to laugh audibly? I did. Oh I my did. god! Pe why people don't want to make small talk when in mid intercourse? <laughs> <laughs> so Anita, do you feel that your family supported your creative pursuits? when you were younger doing them and if not do they accept them and are glad of it now i would say neither one of my parents ever said no don't do this thing i think they've always i and i recognize that that is fortunate that i also was never in a situation where i had to fit like financially support my parents either you know granted they, they didn't have any money and that's fine it very much instilled in me like the importance of saving up money. I'm not saying it's easy to not have money and pursue your creative passions. It's gonna take work, it's gonna take effort. It might even take working seven days a week, but if you're really passionate, it is totally worth it. And I'm grateful that I have parents that never discouraged me from doing the things that I love, Lily. Anita, I asked this of everybody when we come to the end of our chat together. If you had any tidbit of advice or word of encouragement for a child who feels that they want to be creative and maybe their family's against it or 
they don't know how because they don't come from an environment that supports that, but they have this burning idea to be something more than the constraints of their life seems to think that they have the right to be, what would you tell this child? So I would tell this child, because I can definitely relate to that. I mean, even just coming from that kind of background, you do, I think it comes from a place of love when you do have family members that don't support you because often they think you're going to fail. But what I would say is it's it's time, you're gonna have to step out of your comfort zone a little bit. I know that I had to do that. And that means you're gonna have to reach out and try and find like-minded people. And there are different ways to do that. I mean, especially in New York, you know, Things have also changed for the better, I would say, for women. I want to say more people of color. It's it's a very slow progression, but I would say get out of your comfort zone. Do your best to find people that have similar interests to you, whether it be through, you know, Facebook, Twitter, um, meetups. Uh, and if you're trying to do comedy, like go to an open mic, find one that is specific towards people of color and or women. Um, and and stay after those open mics and talk to people, get to know people, exchange information. In real life. In real life. Because even though how much social media has taken over our lives, in the interactions you have in real life are the ones that actually count the most. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anita, you are so wise. I'm so happy you were in Fish Out of Agua. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Hug on the air. Hug on we the air. We always end with a hug on the air. This is a lovely hug. Woohoo! And I think that you have a career in doing ASMR videos.
We're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. A little bit that got lost from Anita Flores' interview was how to find her. So you can contact her. as She's Anita Jutina on both Twitter and Instagram. She's Anita Jutina at Weebly.com for her website. And she's Anita Flores on Facebook. Like her on Facebook. Follow her on Twitter and Instagram. Book her for a show because she's fabulous. <laughs> yes, she is. The song that you just heard was another one of Anita's picks. It was by Robin. It's called Dancing on My Own from her Body Talk Part 1 album in 2010. So we have a little bit of announcements before we get to the end of the show. Um, How would you like to see Brooklyn represented at South by Southwest next year? Huh? If you agree with having Radio Free Brooklyn being known by the entire world, just Get us to Austin's South by Southwest Conference next spring so we can present Pirate Radio version 3.0. It's easy to vote. All you have to do is sign up, and they don't ask you for any money or anything. Just go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org forward slash SXSW and vote for us because everyone should know what Brooklyn sounds like. Well, kids, that's our show. You have been listening once again to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. We're going to close with the last of Anita Flores' picks. It's by Tamia. It's called So Into You, and it's from her self-titled album, Tamia, from 1998. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next, and we'll see you next week. Woohoo!